Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I hope you will go on Amazon and purchase the book or download it on Audible and listen to the book so you can get some more insight as to why I decided to start this podcast show a few years ago and continue the conversation. You're going to hear from professionals. You're going to hear from people with lived experience, those that struggle with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Uh, You're going to listen to people that have recovered. Uh, You're going to hear resources about how you can navigate through this broken road to mental health and life in a business. And you will certainly be hearing me talk about the importance of having this discussion in business today. That is what I speak about at conferences, and I hope that you will take it seriously. We need to speak more about mental health in the workplace. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please be sure to tell somebody you know that might be struggling to subscribe, to listen, to watch and share it with others. You are not alone on this broken road to mental health. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this broken road to mental health. And I'm very excited that we are celebrating International Women's Day on March 8th. So the more women that I can have on this show that are trudging along this broken road to mental health and being a support to others, I'm very proud of. So welcome to the show, Dr. Melissa Green. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist and she's been in the mental health field for over 20 years. Um, I mean, my goodness, there's degrees out the yin yang, which we love. (laughs) And you're doing very, very important work. Um, But you, you started your career in the mental health field um, as a school psychologist, and you've kind of moved around. So why don't you share with the audience about your why, why you decided to get into this field? Because I think there's an interesting story about a science fair. And then we'll move into what you are most passionate about now, because I'm sure there's many things you're passionate about. Okay. So I got into to the field of psychology from a science fair project in seventh grade. And that project was on reaction time. So I had a ruler that I would drop and I was timing people to see how quickly they could catch it. And when I had to do the research, if you want to call it that, for seventh, seventh grade level research on why some people were faster than others, I came across the field of psychology and human behavior and what influences behavior. And that's how, that's how I became interested in psychology. And then I I went to college and I had a professor who, um, who said, I know you're interested in clinical psychology because that's like the thing that we see on TV. So that's kind of all I really knew. But he said, I really want you to consider school psychology because it's important that we have people who are really concerned about African-Americans, particularly African-American males, because there was a disproportionate number of Black boys being referred to special education. And this had been documented by the U.S. Department of Education. And he said, you know, people need to be able to redirect those inappropriate referrals and help to educate teachers about differentiating the curriculum and just finding other ways to 
address their needs um, as opposed to special education because many of them really didn't have needs that warranted that, but there were no other resources or at least, you know, the teachers maybe weren't aware of them. So that's how I started in school psychology. So I decided I was going to, you know, see what that was about. And while I was studying school psychology, um, I still continued to have my eyes on clinical psychology. And I eventually got my doctorate in clinical psychology. And I, my first job actually um, after I got licensed was um, still in the school system, but it was as a clinical psychology. And actually it was in Hawaii. And I kept saying, I don't nice. want to be pigeonholed. And then mm -hmm. I got recruited to work on the military installation while I was in Hawaii. So that's how I got to, um, I, I didn't plan to, that's one thing I didn't plan to do was to work with the military, but I was on one island. Um, I was on the big island of Hawaii. And I, if you've ever been there, it's it's beautiful and the people are wonderful, but there wasn't as much going on as Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. And so I got recruited to go there. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah. And then it opened up a whole world of my career doing tra combat trauma therapy. I got amazing training by the Department of Defense. Uh, and then I started working um, in forensics. So I'm originally from Georgia. I moved back to Georgia because my dad was diagnosed with uh, vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. And I started working in forensics. And I knew after he was diagnosed that at some point in my career, I wanted to start helping people that were like me, who probably had their world shook upside down uh, once they learned about their family member having those um, challenges. And also, I wanted to help people to combat cognitive decline. And so I started focusing on brain health. So that's a so, long-winded answer. Oh, no, I like it. That's exactly what I wanted. So, and I love, you know, um, you have all of these like transferable skills, right? There's every, even though you kept saying that I, I didn't seek out to work, you know, in military and I didn't seek out to do this. I think probably all of it was kind of, you know, divinely planned because yeah. now being back, um, and being able to support and, and help with your father's condition, I'm sure everything that you've learned over all of these years in this field has been very helpful. So um, there's so many, you know, listen, I, I just, I have so many friends of mine who are African-American young men that have never gone to see a therapist or, and never would. And they've had really traumatic things happen in their lives. And, and it's um, it's amazing that it's still in 2023. That it's not like uh, you know, I just made a graphic yesterday with my my team, um, make therapy great again because I really <laughs> do believe that we need to be more pro uh, in order to normalize this conversation. So um, I'm really happy that you're doing this work. I also shared on my page today. Um, the round table that was done at the white house that you had posted about on yours. Um, because I think 
all those conversations are just so, so important. And thank goodness, you know, there's some attention to it finally, right? So kudos to you for all the work that you're doing. But I want to get to, you know, because the attention span of uh, people that listen to podcasts today is about, you know, a flea. So um, I want to get to what you're doing in in the world of of brain health. And, um, you know, many family members have been diagnosed uh, with dementia in my family. It's very personal to me. So, um, and, and you do a lot of work with the kind of around the, the caregivers and the denial sometimes that comes with the caregiving. So can you speak on that? Right. So I think I had mentioned before we started, my goal was really to start working a lot with caregivers, family caregivers, particularly with people with dementia. Um, And then as I started doing, uh, really just taking polls and surveys of people that I know and some people who I I didn't know of how I could best support them, I realized that um, they were like a lot of people were in my family when my dad was first diagnosed they were not ready to have those conversations and really they were minimizing. It it seemed that they were minimizing what was going on or not ready to think about the long-term plan. And I think it's so very important that as soon as you recognize that there are some challenges that you start to put first, start to assess what's going on so that you can know exactly what this person needs Mm -hmm. and at some point um, you have to make a decision about whether the person can continue to live in the place where they're living or do they need in-home support would that be family would that be paid support would they go out and there's so many decisions so many decisions um, (laughs) that i really wanted to yes that i wanted to help and i still do plan to help, but I have to find the, I'm, I'm finding different ways to support family caregivers um, because you can't just go in and say, hey, you really need to think about, you know, three years from now or, and um, so just helping them with stress management in general. Um, I know that there are some people like I was initially having anxiety about, oh, does this mean this is going to happen to me? Or, yeah, so so that's how I got to focusing more on brain health and really helping to empower people to feel like they can do something to combat the cognitive decline. Because I think when you have a family member that is, or, or just or a loved one that is, um, that you see that maybe they're, Uh, cognitive functioning is declining or that maybe you have to uh, they're not have they don't have the same autonomy as before because you have to set some limits on some of the things that they can do that can be heartbreaking and 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 you can also feel powerless because you can't there's only so much that you can do to help them and so if you feel like you there's something that you can do to help yourself sometimes that can that can help um, you to feel like you're able to, to be in a position to help the other person. Yeah. yeah. So let, if you don't mind, I'd like to get into the resistance part when it comes to, um, the, when the diagnosis comes and I'll just talk from personal experience, there's, there's a, 
like a whirlwind of feelings going on, right? First, you're you're sad and you're frustrated and you're concerned and worried and who's going to do what and how, you know. And I, I remember um, getting this diagnosis uh, with my dad and I being, I'm sober 28 years and I'm, I'm used to kind of being the one that's um, open about talking about recovery and everybody getting support. You know, we're taught in recovery that it's a family disease, that this is not just the person that is struggling, that everybody in the family should be taking care of themselves, understanding more about the disease. And I can almost parallel the same thing when it comes to the diagnosis of dementia and Alzheimer's, because even though it's a very different disease, um, a lot of the same resistance can come out and a lot of denial. I've had many, many people say, well, I saw him. He looks great. He sounds great. Are you, are you sure? <laughs> well, this is not what we want. Yeah, of course uh, we're sure, you know, um, and then talking about real stuff, you know, like planning end of life stuff and wills and all of the things that are very difficult. And I think you might agree. I'm 50, you know, my parents are of a generation where, you know, they, they weren't planning like we do as much financially for the future. So it's been a, a very tough kind of um, tiptoeing conversations. Um, and I think that the, the caregivers need so much support, you know, because my goodness, it's, it's a, a difficult, difficult job. And I like how you call it brain health because there is just something about this world where people just mental health, brain health, whatever you want to call it, like, let's talk about getting our brains right. So what do you consider, you know, brain health? Like, what does that, what does that work look like for you? Not you personally, but the work you're well, doing. Oh, no, I know. Yeah. And, and me too. It's probably the things that I talk about will be helpful for me as well. But when I'm talking about brain health, really, I'm talking about the total functioning of the brain across all domains. So it can include cognitive functioning or your thinking ability, ability to problem solve and understand and um, use language. Um, it can also affect your behaviors, your, your motor skills your social emotional functioning or psychological functioning. So brain health encompasses all of those, all of those things, basically everything that we do, what that we do, because the brain regulates the, everything that, that we do. Yeah, totally. So you were um, inspired to complete a yoga, yoga teacher program, um, you know, while you were a forensic evaluator. So you've really kind of, <laughs> You know, if you're going to yoga, I know what that means. That means that you are, if you haven't been in touch with some type of meditative practice or just practice of quieting the mind and, you know, getting your feet planted in the dirt, you know, how is, how do you take all of that, that you learned with, with yoga, with forensics, with military and apply it to what you're, you're working with now with, with brain health, health and all the things that surround family caregiving. Yeah. So I actually um, got inspired from working with the military population 
there was a yoga instructor who came to, she just came to volunteer to work with some of the patients that I was seeing. And I had to co-facilitate, they called it, but I really just had to be a part of the group and collect the data. And she was trained in trauma-sensitive yoga. And initially, the guys that I was seeing, they're like, there's no way. These were Marines, infantry right. Marines. They're like, there's no way I'm going to yoga. You could forget that. And then <laughs> like after a few weeks, they were like, is that yoga lady coming back? Oh, so, yay. Um, so they really saw the benefit. Yeah, they really did. And I did too. And I had um, gone to yoga classes in a gym, but never in a yoga studio. So, mm-hmm. which is a little different because it's more like, medicinal when you're in a um, studio a lot of times the poses are prescriptive in a way for start to address certain issues and she was really teaching them um, certain poses to help to manage anxiety that was associated with the post-traumatic stress that they were dealing with and it really helped them to feel like they could um, be more open and available in talk therapy. And that was a big lesson for me because as a psychologist, obviously we get trained to to get people to talk to us if possible. But I really, you know, I I knew that there is a benefit to helping people to feel safe first before digging in. But I really saw that um, for people who have experienced some type of trauma, they need to know how to self-regulate um, in a way that they're going to feel not not feel like they're re-experiencing the trauma to the point that it is harmful when they're in treatment. And so, giving them those tools like yoga or deep breathing, meditation, it helped to empower them and it made them a little more open. And, in the therapeutic process when we were doing talk therapy or any other type of treatment. So um, I think from learn, it took me 10 years. I didn't get trained until 2020. So it was 10 years later, but I always kept that in my mind that I wanted to go back and learn more. And I would always teach deep breathing exercises, but you know, I had like one or two that I knew that I always use, but in getting that full training, um, to, to be an actual yoga teacher and learning about, about um, you know, the breathing practices, a lot of different types of breathing practices and you know which postures would be beneficial to help to relieve certain types of conditions. It has helped me, I think, to be a better clinician and it has helped me to, it's helped me with my, my low back pain and it's helped me to be able to decompress myself. So I've seen a lot of benefits. And again, that is one of the things that feeds into brain health. Um, the, the AARP has partnered with the Global Council on Brain Health to do research on what things help to feed brain health. And I think they've identified six areas. And one is um, emotional or mental wellness and being able to manage your stress falls into that category. What are the others? So there's the the obvious ones like food. Yeah. <laughs> so they talk they're about, obvious to us. Uh, they might not be so obvious. Uh, right. Well, I mean, like I think people you, we often hear people say, 
eat right and exercise for whatever your ailment is. So that's, yeah. So I didn't mean to be insulting to anyone to say it's obvious, but it's just something that I think we all hear a lot um, about all kinds of conditions, but, but um, they, they talk about the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet, which incorporates the Mediterranean diet and um, what's it called? The DASH diet, which is a diet that's supposed to be for people with hypertension. And so that's, that's one area. Also moving, moving, exercising, exercising regularly, but it doesn't have to be intense. Um, Just getting up and taking movement breaks throughout the day can be beneficial. Uh, let's see, socialization. Mm-hmm. So um, I always say I'm ultra introvert. So this is the area that I'm most challenged in. I I spend time, I have a large family, so I love to spend time with my family and doing things with them, but I don't often get out. I usually maintain my friendships by phone because my friends are usually living in other states or whatever, the people that are closest to me. But there is data to support um, engaging with people more frequently, particularly as you age, because one, it's uh, forcing you to have to communicate and problem solve and navigate through different social situations, which helps to keep your brain active and, um, you know, functioning as well as it can be. And also, um, what did, did I mention, um, the socialization and this is one that um, some people will question, but they do talk about cognitively stimulating activities. I know there's some people that say that there are certain games that have been published that really don't have any research backing to support that they help with brain health, but they mm-hmm. advertise, they're advertised as such. But but the the information that was gathered from the Global Council on Brain Health suggests that there there are certain um, games and crossword puzzles and things that you can do to also keep your mind active. Yeah, it probably doesn't have, um, there's probably no recommendations that we sit in front of a television all day and watch the news and have some bad information uh, coming at us most of the time. And, and, you know, these simple things that are are really so paramount. I mean, we, I talk about it a lot with the integrative medicine doctors that I work with um, in terms of prevention, you know, it's all, it's all the same things, you know, like eat right, exercise, get out in nature, you know, make sure that you move your body. Just today, I will tell everybody, why not? I was having a a little frustration this morning and I'm every Thursday when I do my recordings, I'm in my house a lot, right? In my home office. And I needed to go outside in nature. And I saw some of the beautiful flowers blooming. I'm in Tampa Bay, Florida. So the sun is always shining. And I came back and felt differently, you know? So it doesn't always have to be doing all the things, but at least doing some of the things is better than doing none of the things, right? Right, right, right. And one thing that uh, that I just recently learned um, that actually was not in that that research 
research that was published by AARP and the Global Council on Brain Health is that our age beliefs can have a significant impact on our physical health. Um, And we, you know, I've known as a psychologist that, you know, our thoughts can impact us in a physiological way, but I hadn't thought about uh, specifically about how we think about the aging process and how that can impact us. And so there is research to suggest that if you think positively about aging, then it can it can buffer you from some of those things that might make you more vulnerable if you have negative beliefs about aging and start to see and contribute everything that's happening to the aging process. So, you know, you said you're 50, I'm 51. (laughs) So now I may be more likely to, and I catch myself to, you know, if I feel an ache or pain, I may contribute that to, aging versus, oh, you know, I just slept on my arm in an awkward way. So I have to challenge myself to start thinking of every possible reason for something happening versus just because I'm 51. Right. I mean, we are young. We are young women. And uh, yeah. I, yeah, we are. I mean, and, and with the, the way it's going with, with medicine today and taking care of ourselves and doing some of the, the simple things, uh, drinking a lot of water and staying hydrated and having great lighting around you. There's so many things that um, can help us. And, and my husband and I just bought a puzzle uh, recently, and that will be one of the things that we work on this weekend. I don't think I've done a puzzle since I was like, I don't know, nine. So whatever it takes to, to help this brain stay healthy is, is what I'm going to do. And I think it's a, a great message for everybody. So Dr. Green, thank you so much for all you're doing to keep us healthy and our brains healthy. And I, I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me.